All right. Welcome back to your Dose of Real Estate podcast for episode three with Evan and Andy. Um, this one, we're just going to, we, we're just kind of talking. We want to kind of hit on all the myths that people have when it comes to the real estate, just name in general, the, the misconception that comes with loans, um, landlords, it's a get rich quick kind of scheme thing. So we just came up with a couple of ideas. Uh, at first we said, let's knock out five and Andy and I just kept going back and forth. And I think we ended at like 99. Um, <laughs> but I mean, just to kind of start, uh, we think that the first thing we should really hit on is everyone, I wouldn't say everyone, I guess I shouldn't start like that. Um, people think that they need 20% down as their down payment, which is a hundred percent wrong because depending on the loan program, um, we can kind of hear from Andy what he used. Um, and then I can kind of tell you what we use up here, but in Wisconsin, at least there's a loan program. Obviously you got your VA, if you're a veteran, uh, that's 0% down. And then all the way, you can go 3% for a thing that we call WIDA loan up here. Um, conventional. What do you call WIDA? Yeah. WIDA. So oh. like Wisconsin housing economic development association, I believe is what it stands for. And it's, it's kind of the idea of like first time home buyer, but I wouldn't classify it as that. It's kind of in place uh, hand in hand with FHA, but not as strict. Um, okay. And it gives the buyers like the chance because so you can like double down. So you could do 3% WIDA, um, but you could do a WIDA easy close. And that additional 3% is a second mortgage and you come with mm-hmm. zero to the table. Gotcha. Yeah, we have something like that in Colorado. Actually, there's two. Um, the the most popular one is Chaffa, Colorado homeowners, something or another. But it is meant for first time home buyers. Yeah, sorry, I don't know what that acronym stands for. But same thing, right? Yeah, you've got basically they'll fund your loan up to whatever loan to value the bank will allow, and then the down payment they also help you with as a second mortgage, typically. I'm sure weed is the same way. It carries a higher interest rate on that second loan. So maybe your mortgage is like three and a half percent, but your, your smaller loan is at like 6% or something like that. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. the biggest thing is shop around, find a good shop is like good friends with mortgage lenders and can find you the best deal. Yeah. And I think, I think the 20% down, like you typically that comes from family, you know, family oriented people that are very, you know, they're very uh, conservative with their finances, right? So if you're buying your house for your family, um, you want to do so as smart as possible. And the big, the big thing with the 20% down, that gives you a loan to value ratio of 80%, which at that point, lenders don't need to add in private mortgage insurance, PMI. So by putting at least 20% down, you're avoiding that extra cost. But what you really need to consider, especially if you're doing this as an investment, like the way I do it, you know, I only put 3% down and then 5% down on my second home. Um, typically private mortgage insurance is like one to one and a half percent of the loan value. So it comes out to, you know, five to 10 grand spread out over the first 10 years of your loan. Um, so you got to think, okay, can I, by saving that money on my down payment, by putting less money down, can I invest that money somewhere else and get a better return than one and a half percent? And if you can't get a better return than one and a half percent on your money, I think you need to speak with a different financial advisor because that's not very good. Right. So yeah, it's, it it is, it's going to increase your payment a little bit each month, but if you're, if you're comfortable with that payment, 
it's not a big deal. If it's lower than your rent, you're still coming out ahead. If you're renting out part of your house, you can just look at it as your tenants are paying that. There's a lot of different ways that you can kind of spend that one. But yeah, the 20% down thing, kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of gone away, that kind of mentality, because there's just a lot of different reasons why you would want to keep more money in your pocket. And I've, I mean, I've, I've even got like family that's saying, oh, we, you know, we want to save, you know, for two or three more years so we can put 20% down. Well, that money is not going to get you nearly as much of a house in, you know, two to three years as it is right now. I mean, prices in Denver are going up 10, 15% a year. And you're seeing the same thing in Wisconsin, right? So by saving money, all of a sudden now, if you're thinking about putting 20% down on a $200,000 house, well, $200,000 isn't going to buy you nearly as much money or as much of a house, you know, here on December 10th, 2020, as it would December 10th, 2022. Absolutely. So there's just a lot of things to consider there. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And that's, yeah, that's a huge, I would say that's one of the biggest conversations I have with people that are trying to get uh, pre-approved is they want to just, they have this idea of I need to save up so I don't have this PMI, but it's like you get in your first house. If let's say I never, like I say, I never shop someone to the top of their budget. So let's say we buy in the middle of your budget. Okay. So you build some equity, three, five years, you turn around and you sell that there's your 20% on your next house. No one says mm -hmm. you have to live in your first house for life, 20 years, you name it. The whole idea is when you're renting, you're th I see it as throwing away money, but other people would argue investors that have properties like, oh, it's good or whatever. But the biggest thing is when you own a house, like you know, you can write off the interest of your mortgage and your taxes every year as a deduction yep. for your taxes. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, we're not tax experts, but yeah. And if you start renting out the property, now it's an investment property. It's being used for a business purpose. So literally any improvement you make to that property uh, is now tax deductible. And so say, you know, I buy a home and then I move out a year later, which is exactly what I did. Now, every time I pay somebody to paint the house or if I upgrade the kitchen, you know, it's a business expense. There's a difference between repairs and capital expenditures, which again, talk to a CPA. They know this stuff much better than me, but all that stuff is written off either the year that you do the work or over a certain amount of um, years, depending on how it's being depreciated and all that gets written off against your income and come tax season, that's a pretty nice thing to see. And then, yeah, there's, I mean, we can get into the tax advantages of real estate in one episode alone, but um there's things like 1031 exchanges where you can defer paying those taxes later on. And that's how people build wealth quickly. And I say quickly in air quotes, cause we'll talk about this later on that it's not a get rich quick scheme, but there are, that's why so many people in real estate have generated so much wealth is because the tax deferrals that you can take advantage of are so advantageous to people who start out early in their careers investing in real estate. Yeah, absolutely. Which kind of like rolls into our next myth, uh, the idea that you can buy any home with any loan program, which you can't because if you have FHA, they're going to call out chip paint, uh, like broken windowsills, you name it. And you're the, at the end of the day, the bank or the mortgage company, they're not going to give you the money to buy that house because it's not safe. Where other loans, they'll let you let the seller cure and then that way you can still loan on that house and purchase at home. Yeah. And, and then if you get, you know, that's more retail buying, right? So when I think of 
you know, a new couple buying their first home together or whatever the case is, you know, they're more retail buyers. If you're doing it as an investment, um, the most common way to build wealth very quickly in real estate is to buy a property that wouldn't qualify for any of those loans, right? Because like you said, it could be anything from chip paint or, you know, foundation issues for whatever reason. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why banks won't lend, a, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of their money on these properties because there's more risk involved. But you can also look into what's called private money or hard money. So basically, these are private lenders. They're actually other investors. They're not just big banks that are going to sell the loans off to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. They're investors that will say, look, okay, I'll give you, say you're buying a house that fixed up, it's worth a hundred grand. And you can get it for 50 grand and you got to put 30 grand into it. And then, um, you know, after all that, you're all in for 80 grand, but it's worth a hundred grand. So you get a hard money lender to give you the money to do that. And you're paying, you know, maybe eight, 10, 12% interest on that. But the goal is, is to get the work done properly. And in a short amount of time, then you go to a big bank and say, Hey, look, okay, I've got this house worth a hundred thousand dollars. Will you give me a loan for $80,000 so I can pay that off to my other um, lender. And now you've got your traditional 30 year mortgage on it. That was like in a nutshell, a very complex, but simple process at the same time on how you can use different leverage tools to build wealth in real estate. And that's why some people say, well, you can really do this without any of your own money. You are taking on additional risk by using these higher interest loans. But if you do it right and you do your due diligence, you know, you could really come out ahead. Yeah, no, that was an excellent point. Like, I didn't even know that beginning part that you were explaining, but I mean, like people always say in real estate to get started, you essentially have to use other people's money to get your feet wet. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of, I mean, you could get into wholesaling. I mean, there's a lot of ways to get involved again, speaking from the investment standpoint, but I also think that these myths could go towards, you know, just if, if you don't want to use real estate as a, wealth building tool, that's fine. There's a lot of people that don't, it is a lot of work and there are risks that you are taking on, but it's like, you know, starting any business, there's going to be risks involved and with higher risk comes higher reward. You just got to know what you're doing, but yeah, like the 20% down that we talked about and these other loan options, like you just got to be aware of what's out there. Even if you're just, you know, your typical, you know, buyer that's only going to buy one, two, maybe three homes in a lifetime. Yeah. So, so I think what's our third one? What's it? I said, what's our third myth? We could probably move on to. I mean, the one that gives me the biggest headache, we'll kind of come back to your, yours, like towards the bottom around the uh, get rich quick one. But mm-hmm. this one gives me a huge headache is when people get pre-approved, they want to see everything under the sun that they can mm-hmm. afford because they have a piece of paper saying that they can buy up to that amount. And the biggest thing that I run into, because I always say go on realtor.com or whatever site, and it should tell you if it's active, sure. Yeah, we could set up an appointment. But if it says contingent or pending, it already has an offer that's uh, being worked through all the contingencies, the inspection, the appraisal. And they would say, well, I'm pre-approved. Why can't I put an offer down? Yeah. Yeah. That's just not how it works, right? When yeah. it's under contract, you know, unless that contract falls out. And I, you know, even me as a buyer the first time, I didn't really understand what that meant as a contract when you're under contract but you're in a legally binding agreement with the seller if you're a buyer or with the buyer if you're the seller that if you both hold up your end of the contract, you're gonna exchange the property for some sort of consideration. 
99.9% of the time, that's money. Sometimes, you know, you can just trade one house for another or maybe 10 cars for a house, whatever, but it's a legally binding contract. So yeah, if you're under contract in that house, you have to hold up your end of the bargain in due time. Um, and yeah, somebody else can't swoop in, you know, five days later after going under contract and offer 20 over what, you know, maybe I'm under contract for. And all of a sudden the seller can say, Oh, nope, I'm done. I'm going to go with these people who are going to offer me more money. It, it just doesn't work that way. Right. And I always joke about it too. It's like, how would you feel if we were, let's say a week out from closing? And I only say that cause I have two next week, but it's like, and someone just swooped in and was just like, yep, I'm going to buy it now. Then what? You could be homeless yeah. because you had been selling your place. Like you could right. have been set on that home. Maybe right now, like impact letters are huge. You could have wrote an impact letter, how you can't wait to raise your family there and all that. And then out of nowhere, someone comes in and buys it. No way. Yeah. The real estate market would be a different world. It'd be a wild, wild west, I'm sure. And it would just make more people upset. And I think it would honestly kill the industry if it was like that. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree. So, I mean, just kind of moving forward, it's, it, since we keep bringing it up, it's real estate is not a get rich quick kind of business. It's a, uh, you got to do your due diligence. You got to build your clientele. You always got to have people in the pipeline, but at the same time, more and more, I hear this in seminars and I've never looked at other people like this. You can't look at your clients as money. You have to look at them as friends first because friends buy things with friends. They don't buy things with people that are pushy. So mm -hmm. Andy and I were kind of talking about this at the beginning and I could tell you my personal story in a different podcast, but my first year in real estate, even with my parents being in it for 20 years, I didn't make more than 10 grand out of college. I have a college degree. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, and, I mean, and you're also, you also started in probably one of the hottest, you know, real estate markets we've ever seen. And that's, so that just shows you, and it's not for a lack of effort, right? Like you're a smart dude that works your butt off and yeah, it's, it's a hard industry to get started in. Yeah. There's especially no with it. the idea of getting rich quick, like people see it, Oh, real estate's so easy. Well, you unlock the door and you let them walk around. And I would say, yeah, that's exactly what I do. You don't see the, the behind the scenes, the, town hall meetings you have to attend the inspection reports that come back and you tried to what i always try to do is i always try to mitigate through anything that's going to come up on the inspection report i always try to take care of it before i say anything to my client and there's times where i'm sitting at the closing table and they say wow this was such an easy process where i'm sitting here like if you only knew yeah yeah and also evan when are you doing a lot of the negotiating and a lot of this work probably at night right because I mean, what happens if, if you're working a typical nine to five and you're looking to buy a house, you're going to go view houses either after you're done working during the day or on weekends. So then you as the agent, you know, when are you making the calls? Well, when all your appointments are over with, well, when is that at night? So like, I thought about it when I was buying the second house, I was on the phone with my realtor one day at like 1130 and I hung up. I was like, man, what a, like, <laughs> I, felt, I felt kind of bad for bugging her, but I mean, we, she didn't mind. She was a rock star and uh, we got through what we needed to get through and it was kind of a time sensitive thing. So she understood, but you know, that's probably not very uncommon as an agent to deal. No, with absolutely. Like and you nailed it on the head. Like, I mean, sure. I could be working all day. I could be looking for houses, working through any contracts I got in the works right now during the day. But as soon as five Oh one hits, man, my phone just blows up until 10, 11 o'clock at night and you're doing the showings and all that this Saturday, 
my my wife's she's like let's spend the weekend together well sorry because i have showings all day saturday and sunday now which i have no yep. problem with because i know how competitive it is and how serious my buyers are right now that there's going to be good that comes from this yeah yeah and i mean it's fun right i'm sure it's fun i guess i'm not speaking from experience but when i was a buyer i loved looking at the houses i loved picking my agent's brain a little bit i think this is speaking on my first house. I think she may have been a little overwhelmed with me. I think I'm a little more inquisitive than most buyers, right? Like I'm sure most of your buyers are like, Oh, that chandelier is so cute. And look at these counters are great. And I was more like, I was looking at it from a number standpoint, like, okay, is this value, you know, is what they're pricing at pricing it at? Does it make sense? You know, where, you know, what's a reasonable price for this? Why, do I think it would be a good idea to purchase this versus not? Is the area going to go up in value? You know, and then I'd start asking her, like, what do you know about the development in this area? You know, I saw that building was getting torn down down the street. Do you know what's going in there? So, but as an agent, you know, you've got to be ready to field those questions because you don't know what the buyer's expectations are until you really start getting into the process. Absolutely. And I, I'm huge on trying to read people as fast as I can when I meet them or working with them because I always play every single conversation in every which way before we have an appointment because I want to have every answer. And mm-hmm. but at the same time, you're a human being. There's always the right answer too. Like I will find out for you and I will get back to you. I stand yep. behind my word. If I say, say we have shown at seven o'clock at night and we didn't wrap up till eight and I say, I will figure it out by nine o'clock tonight. No later than nine o'clock. They have an answer because I told them that's what I was going to do. And that, which yep. kind of leads into our next myth. Like, People are just like, well, real estate agents are realtors. Like every, all of them are the same, but it's not. Like Andy was saying, he was talking to his agent till 1130 at night. Yep. Yeah. So it, I don't know if I had a different agent, you know, would it be a different story? Probably. I mean, like you said, right? I mean, as, as an agent, you got to look at your clients as people first. And as a buyer or a seller, you got to look at your agent as a person too. And you got to just make sure that your, both of your goals are aligned with each other and it's going to make sense. If I am dealing with, you know, 75 year old Nancy, who's been a realtor since, you know, forever, is she going to give the hustle and bustle that I might want to put a competitive offer in, in a very short time frame on a house that I know is going to go quickly? Probably not. Sorry, Nancy. Maybe that's a little, you know, maybe, maybe I'm generalizing a little too much, but like versus, you know, somebody like Evan or, potentially me when I become an agent um, that's going to be hungry to earn your business and also want what's truly best for you. Like if I'm working with another investor, right. And this is kind of another aside, like if, if it's such a good deal and I'm working with a, an agent who's also an investor, why wouldn't that agent buy it? Not all agents are only in real estate to make money. Like my dream one day is to open up my own brokerage and have some sort of outreach program to work with younger people to teach them how to build wealth. Like I, I don't need to be a bajillionaire one day flying my multiple private jets around. I I'm happy with helping people also, you know, achieve some sort of happiness and comfort in their life. Cause I genuinely believe that everybody deserves that. Right. And I genuinely believe that real estate is by far and large the most tried and true method of doing that. Some people will argue mutual funds are just as effective. That's, you know, that's a conversation for a different time, but I, I think real estate is such a powerful tool and that's why eight, you know, the good agents also realize that and they want to help you, right? Because yeah, they make money off of it, but they'll also get repeat business off of it. They'll get other opportunities that come from it. 
Maybe one day your client becomes a partner. Maybe one day an old high school buddy calls you up and you're doing a podcast together a few months later. Like you just don't know what can happen. Right. So that's why it's gotta be a mutually beneficial relationship. And if you, I mean, Evan, I'm sure you've got some sort of vetting process that you do and hopefully all the stars align, but you know, it doesn't always work out and it's just, it's, it's, it's an ever moving target, I guess. Absolutely. And I mean, this is just how I look at life and how I do anything in life because if there's anyone from high school that listens to Andy and I talk now on this podcast, I'm a 180 degree different person than what I was in high school. Like if I, if I give you my word, I'm going to do it. But at the same time, I expect the same from you. So if you want to start looking at houses, you have to do your due diligence on your end. You got to get pre-approved. I will show nobody houses until they're pre-approved. I know some agents that will do that just to get people excited, but it's like, either you're going to overshop them and they're going to get so excited about a certain house that they can't afford. And now you kind of crush that, that uh, what like life that they wish they could have. And now they can't afford it. Like I would never Mm -hmm. do that to somebody. And at the same time, I only work as a buyer's agent, which means I always have my buyer's interest in mind over the sellers. I'm trying to get them the best deal. And I tell them that we're dating from now until we close Right. And I will not let anything get in the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's your job at the end of the day. And it's a beautiful thing. I actually, so I, when I was looking at my first house, I, I looked at a house that was like 800 grand or something like that with my realtor. And I ended up apologizing to her. I was like, Hey, you know, early on, I didn't really know what I was looking for and all this stuff. And I, I think I took advantage of her just wanting to look at a couple cool houses and now knowing more about what agents go through, like you said, they're people, they're hardworking, they've got other clients, they've got other things they need to take care of on top of, like everybody deserves the time to decompress, work out, you know, have a hobby. And it's just all stuff that you need to take into consideration as a buyer too. Um, so if you're out there and you get frustrated with your agent, <laughs> just remember that they're people too with lives, probably. I don't know, some yeah. of them are probably weirdos that don't like to do anything other than look at houses, but but I always like make the joke, like you will be the first person to know because you, like you said, we're in a legal binding contract. I yep. can't hide this information from you. So it's always funny because we always get texts like asking for updates. It's like, well, like I said, you will be the first one to know when I know something and yep. kind of touching on a point that you had mentioned about how hard real estate agents work. I always say I do this for a job, not a hobby. And I learned that from my mom and that kind of just, recorrelates just the idea of like people they try to make a living from real estate and being a realtor and this misconception that we make all this money and it's just like well we don't really care about their time like that just kills some realtors and that's why they don't make it for five years yep yep yeah man it's a grind i'm excited to get into it i just stupid FBI's have my fingerprints for over a month now. Hopefully they're not knocking on my door. I'm not in Denver right now. Maybe they're looking for me. I don't know. For sure. All right, man, let's hit on this (laughs) last myth. Andy wants to talk about how being a landlord, you're not unclogging toilets at 3 a.m. Yeah. So I, that's like the most common thing when I, so I started talking to my family and a couple of close friends like, Hey, this is what I want to do. I want to buy some properties. I want to run them out and I want to make a lot of money doing it. And you get this, well, are you sure you want to be unclogging toilets at 3 a.m., blah, 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 blah. And I just want to say, if, if that is your biggest concern um, or if that idea crosses your mind uh, when you're 
listening to me talk about doing this investment thing. Like it's not for me because I don't want to do that. Just get that idea out of your head. Now there, there's ways to manage. I mean, you got to look at your tenants as basically your employees in a weird way, right? Set your expectations up front. You do have the responsibility to provide them with a habitable house. Everything needs to work. But if they take a big dump at 3 a.m. or shove something down the toilet, it is not your responsibility to go unclog it. Sure, your phone could ring at 3 a.m. because there's a pipe that bursts. But yeah, that'd be really inconvenient and it's going to cost you money. But also, you could be living in an apartment one day and your pipe could burst and you have to call your landlord to deal with it, right? So it's kind of a double-edged sword. But as a landlord, I can tell you that if you take care of your property... I mean, nobody's going to take care of your property more so than yourself. So when I moved into my first house, I made sure everything was up and running and in good working condition. So I, you know, you can't always predict the future, but I have a, like, it's got a brand new roof. Our sewer line failed on us. So I got that patched and fixed. And so I've got no reason to believe that it's going to fail me again for as long as I own the house. I got new electrical installed and I made sure I vetted my contractor. So they did a good job. Like there's ways to avoid issues from coming up. If you're just going to be a slumlord that buys, you know, one of those $15,000 duplexes in Milwaukee that looks like it's been, you know, abandoned for 20 years and you don't do anything to fix it up. Yeah. You're going to run into issues. And if you don't set expectations with your tenants up front and say, Hey, look, I'm not responsible. I'm not your mom or dad. I'm not going to come shovel the driveway for you. You know, that's your responsibility. And you also got to look at like, what's the norms in your area, but like, I'm not going to unclog your toilet, um, stuff like that. There's ways around it. And then if, even at that point, if you can't quite figure that out, but you have enough rental properties where you're making decent money, most people don't know this. And I didn't know this when I was a renter, but like the property management company that you're renting your current place through right now probably does not own that house. It's probably another investor and that property manager, much like a real estate agent or any sort of you know, professional relationship you develop in a business world, that property manager works for the owner of the house. They probably take like eight to 10% of the rent a month and charge them other, you know, if something goes wrong, they charge them to send the handyman out there. Like there's just ways around it. Right. So if you set your portfolio up correctly and you're making enough money where you can be like, look, I can fork over a hundred bucks per unit per month to my property manager. I don't have to deal with anything. And I'm still making, you know, whatever, like I told you, Evan, my goal is to make five grand a month in residual income. So then I can really rethink about how I can go about the rest of my career. Like if I can make five grand a month and not have to do a flipping thing other than, okay, if something goes wrong, I have to pay for it. But that's why you have reserves. And we can talk about that more in future episodes, but like, that's a pretty sweet deal. I don't know anybody else out there other than real estate investors, maybe people who are really good at investing in dividend stocks that are making five grand a month without doing anything or even more so like name me another tool that does that unless you've built your own business. But again, it, there's other ways to do it, but real estate to me just seems like the most obvious way. Dude, I don't know about you guys, but that just got me so jacked up listening to that, that I <laughs> looking at these apartments out my window and I'm like, man, I should just buy all these. Dude, if only, right. I'm, I'm on Zillow, Redfin, realtor.com, LoopNet. Like I'm on all these sources out there looking to see if there's any good deals out there. So man, if anybody comes across a deal that they're looking to sell, let Evan and I know, cause we're also in the market potentially to look at some rental properties. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're trying to start our uh, little entity and uh, LLC together and, you yeah. know, pretty much own the Midwest, but I mean, 
Dude, we nailed a lot of things in this one, and I, I think this is going to be the money maker. You know, we're making big moves on Anchor, our free podcast app. So, if you thanks for tuning in, guys. If you guys love this, please share it to everybody you know because we've been getting some good traction. I think we're up to eleven people as our audience, Andy. I think that's pretty big. Yeah, that's Definitely huge, man. Crazy. That's the biggest audience I've ever had. And thank you to those eleven listeners. You guys are awesome. Yeah, absolutely. A year from now, when we're at eleven thousand listeners, you can be like, "Look, I was the original 11. And maybe we'll give you a free T-shirt or something. I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah, maybe we'll hand out free T-shirts or koozies, <laughs> whatever the free merchandise is now. But that's it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your dose of real estate podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. <laughs>